Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. I'm Susanna Layartawa in for Wallace Chapman. Today, our panellists, Penny Ashton. Kia ora. Hello. And Salwa Manning. Hello. Well, thank you for your feedback so far. We've had quite a bit. Michael, thank you for your text. No one has ever said that cultural reports will no longer be allowed, just that the taxpayer will no longer fund them, which has only been happening for the last six years anyway. The state has never funded the preparation of victim impact reports, which are just as relevant as cultural reports in respect of sentencing. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And Mike has also texted in, two of my family work in the supermarket industry. I would like them to come home unharmed at the end of the day. If some feral wants to blame uh, their upbringing when they know what is wrong, but do it anyway, they cannot complain about facial recognition. Point well made, Mike. And Dennis says, try tangata tiriti rather than non-Māori. So this is just a sample of the variety. And needless to say, that SUV kōrero is continuing to beam in, text to one. So thank you, thank you, thank you for all of your perspectives, opinions and experiences. Have the fees at your local doctor gone up? Well, GPs at Flagstaff Medical Centre in Hamilton have written a letter to their patients to explain why their charges have gone up, saying, quote, general practice is at a crisis point. Some patients refused to pay when the fees went up from $54 to $59 a visit. But in its letter, the clinic says they may need to increase fees to stay solvent and will need to cut services. A report commissioned by the Labour government concluded GPs are unpaid for half of the work they do. That was back in 2022. At the moment, GP practices are funded through funded through payments based on the number of patients and patient fees. The clinic in Hamilton isn't alone. Dr Paula Matheson is a GP in Whangare and Paula joins us now. Kia ora, Paula. Kia ora. Hi. Hi. Could you explain for us how GP clinics are funded? Okay. Um, There's two main sources of funding. The first one is our capitation funding, and that's the money a practice gets to provide health care to their enrolled population. Um, the, the The funding is an average of two and a half to three visits per year per person, and but it doesn't factor in complexity, deprivation, ethnicity, or for the very elderly. So it not brilliant. It's a very blunt tool. And the second main source of funding is patient fees. And that's, you know, what we charge patients for things. And I think it's it's extremely important that our uh, people understand that the government controls virtually all of this funding. They prescribe the percentage increase for the capitation funding and they prescribe the percentage increase that we can increase our fees. So for me, um, I'm in a VLCA practice and the fees for a standard consultation is $19.50. That was last allowed to be increased in 2017, I think it was, and it was by 50 cents. So... Things, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that things are not going to be going well financially for general practice. So let me just get my head around that. So how do you cover the cost of keeping the door open? 
um, take a mortgage, <laughs> take pay cut, um, just struggle on. Um, I've been struggling on, and it's the sink with the sinking lid. So capitation has not increased at the same rate as inflation for 21 years. In fact, health inflation is double the CPI. So you can imagine how fast this lid is sinking and how hard it's impacting us. So for me, I I always thought that our people, New Zealanders, valued health and valued their health. And I believe the government did did that as well. And so I took the government on the word and uh, Labour campaigned in 2017 prior to their election that they would be looking at capitation funding. And so since then, I've been expecting something to change. And to hear Ayesha Verrill saying, you know, she wanted to fast track just before the last election, the capitation, and to hear Shane Retty saying that they're going to have another look at a review of previous reviews is just stalling and it's just gone beyond a joke. The report that you were referring to, the 2022 one, was the Sapire report. And the government commissioned that report and the report was based on data that was two to three years old already. And it, um, they concluded that general practice was seriously underfunded, that they needed up to 231% increase in funding just to stay you know, on level ground. And in Northland, where I work, the, I've heard rumours from the Ministry of Health that the that number has now increased to 300%. And in that superior report is where you got 50% of our work is unpaid. So if you go to your general practice and your GP isn't in the building, be rest assured they are still working. They're doing part of that 50% of unpaid work. And, for example, I spent most of the beautiful Waitangi day sitting behind my desk at my computer panicking, trying to get catch up with paperwork, and I didn't achieve it. So it's yeah, it's it's grim. And the another problem isn't it something I think I remember hearing something like two thirds of GPs will be retired by twenty thirty five or something like that. And then this yeah. is obviously no incentive for anyone to actually want to become one. No. So every time we talk about everything I ever hear, and if if I hear it one more time, I think I'll scream. They talk. There's the headlines of recruitment. We're going to have a a new medical school in Waikato. We're going to increase medical school numbers. We're going to recruit from overseas. For goodness sake, plug the hole in the bucket before you start trying to fill it. No, you can't... Retention is important, and so many of my colleagues are retiring earlier than they want to. A lot of people are changing their business, going into things like skin cancer clinics or um, doing in-box wrestling. Lots and lots of things that pay better are less stressful because they've just given up hope. And And it's sad. And I don't blame any of those doctors. I fully support them. I understand where they're coming from. Um, General practice has become really hard and it's going to be really difficult to recruit. 
the College of GPs this year was celebrating, uh, I think it was 250-something placements in general practice registrar training this year, and that was all a big celebration, the biggest number we've ever had. The government had um, announced funding places for 300. We can't fill them because the job is no longer attractive. If it was properly resourced, well-funded, I, I love general practice. I love my job. I, my patients are the most amazing. Every GP will tell you the same. Their patients are amazing. They love them and they want to do everything for them. And But it's... It needs to be financially viable. Yeah. yeah. And to get Sell to the harsh, harsh, harsh truth, I'll tell you my truth. I'm 58 years old. I have no retirement fundings. I'm living in a house that seriously needs renovations. And I've been hanging on to these promises of increased funding and um, believing it'll be okay and just plowing more and more and more into my business to keep the doors open because I really care and I actually really love my job. And it's just not fair and it's just not right. I cannot imagine anybody in the Ministry of Health accepting 20 years of pay cuts and increasing workloads without getting a little bit annoyed. Mm. <laughs> anyway, Selwyn. Yeah, yeah well, Selwyn, well over said. to you. We'll just give you the final question, Selwyn, and we'll go to the next topic. Unfortunately um, for us, because it's clearly a conversation that we're going to need to continue, and it's so good to have you on today, Paula, just yeah, to give you. such clear experience that mm. you're having right now. Selwyn, just mm. to I'll finish just, with you. I'll, sure, I'll, I'll pick up a couple of things that you've said there, Doctor. And one of them, obviously, is access to healthcare, particularly primary healthcare, is an essential for the country's overall health status of all of its mm. communities. If you're looking at the um, capitation funding, for example, I remember reporting deeply on this type of thing way back in yeah. the 1990s. And it was population-based yeah. funding formula. It looked at the health status to measure the health status, the morbidities, the socioeconomic status, all of that data way back those decades ago was available to the then regional health authorities. That data is here already. We've got a health minister who has had quite a while in uh, opposition. He will have ideas of solutions. We should be hearing those uh, to ask at this stage for receiving advice on sustainable solutions. Seems like he's kicking the ball down the road. I would suggest here, and I'm, I'm basically putting things out and seeing whether or not it knits with your your experience in the practice. But I think that there are two things here. Looking at the capitation funding is an essential. That's an immediate need, clearly. Also, yeah. beyond this, a complete restructure of primary health. In my view, it's about people having access to health care to pick up the problems before they become big. Now, if that necessitates some sort of private and public model where the public access for those that cannot access the costs that are necessary to be charged in the private setting of primary health, well, then the government bite the bullet and do that, develop it. Don't wait for two terms down the, down the political cycle and then say, oh, we should have done that. We wanted to do it and we were going to do it. Boo-hoo. I think, you know, now is the time. The need is there. You know, and I'm in the Hawke's Bay. I'll just finish off on this. Mm. Moved down here over a year ago, you cannot get a GP 
I'm still signed up yeah. to a GP in Auckland because you cannot get one down here that has room on the books. All it's, the things that you've said are uh, suggesting why that's the case. I put it over to you whether or not the solutions of a, of, um, a hit on there can have a part in this debate or are they old school thinking? I think we're going to have to just leave it there for both of you. But what I am realising and realising it honestly, and I'm on the panel next week, is that this is a topic that we really want to open up and discuss further. And so we will. But just looking at the clock, I'm sorry, we are going to have to move on to our next topic. I want to thank you both very much for just really leaving this wide open for us to continue. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Bye. RNZ National, 21 minutes past four. You're with the panel. It's the wildfire season in New Zealand. As I mentioned in the intro, close to 2,600 fires so far. Tracking close to normal, apparently, but fire and emergency still worried. The risk will rise, increase as the dry and hot weather is forecast to continue. The fire in the Lee Valley in Tasman, 11 houses evacuated for the past three days as firefighters hope to bring that under control this afternoon, right about now. In Auckland, of course, we had the Green Gorilla recycling plant fire in Onihunga. Meanwhile, firefighters were here today in Wellington preparing for the possibility they won't have enough water to fight major fires. So Joseph Stanley, Joe Stanley, Vice President of the New Zealand Professional Firefighters Union, joins us now. Tēnākoe, Joe. How are you? Good, thank you. It's a busy time for your members right now. Uh, it's a terribly busy time for and it has been for the last few weeks. I understand that the the numbers that we're having are normal, but um, we feel the pressure because across the country we are stretched. Our staffing is stretched and our volunteers are stretched every day. We work really hard to ensure that our communities are protected. We have firefighters in, working in North Canterbury, Nelson, Marlborough and Auckland at the moment, firefighters mitigating the risk of water restrictions in Wellington every day. Do we have enough firefighters around the country? At this stage, no. We're working towards increasing the number of firefighters and lessening the risk that has on our communities through um, lack of staffing in the organisation. But that hasn't, we haven't achieved that yet. But those that are here work hard every day to make sure we can respond to the triple one calls. Now, I rattled off a number of things in the intro there. What can you tell us? What sort of overview can you give us? Or is there some detail that you can share? Like, let's just talk about the fire in the Lee Valley, for example. Yes, so the fire in the Lee Valley, I think the, the key takeaway from that at the moment is that we've evacuated uh, those properties up there. Firefighters continue to dampen down uh, the fires there and dampen down the hotspots. Actually, I was talking to the urban search and rescue teams this morning that were deployed there this morning to put up their drones so they could find the hard-to-reach hotspots and get water on them. Um, they'll be there for the next three days just making sure that there's no risk of those fires escalating or reigniting. Um, again, that's that's really tough work um, around the clock stuff for those firefighters, but they, you know, they're, they're happy to do it. I think um, to talk about drones, it's really important for people to understand that when we're conducting firefighting activities, having drones in the air can restrict our ability to work with helicopters, um, especially or our aerial ladder uh, and aerial ladder trucks. So I would ask that the community please wait with their drones, keep the drones away from our our firefighting areas and let us just get to work putting those putting those fires out. We we have to work at times really close to those helicopters. They have to drop water very close to where we're fighting potentially structural vegetation fires. So to have 
uh, any risk, those helicopters risk, not just the helicopter pilots, those working with the helicopters, but the firefighters on the ground underneath them as well. So people are just not getting it, right? With this, what, They'll pop a drone up, what, because they want to have a closer look? It's like rubbernecking yeah, from I, the I sky. Think, rubbernecking yeah, I, I from think, the sky, Penny. Mm. Oh. I, I think that, that's the new phrase, isn't it? Rubbernecking from the sky. Mm. Um, I, I don't think people are doing it maliciously. Everyone wants to have a look. It's really, I understand it's really exciting. I just want them to understand that it's really dangerous for us, really dangerous for the helicopter crews that are trying to put those fires out as, as fast as they can. Any delay in our firefighting activities means that fire can spread further than it needs to. It puts more people at risk, more property at risk, um, and we we really don't want that to happen. Uh, we understand that people want to have a look, but you've got to let us do our work. Salwin, any questions for Joe? Um, just um, from the point of view of exit strategies, if people are living in dangerous areas, what is the best thing they should do? You know, to to minimise risk to themselves and their their um, properties. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, if people recognise that it's really dry around them at the moment and there is a risk of fire, then just put in place evacuation strategies for themselves. Make sure they've got uh, meeting places for their family in the event that they do have to be evacuated. And please, please, when the fire service or the police come and ask you to evacuate, then please evacuate with them. Um, I went to the North Canterbury fires just recently and spent a long time convincing a few people to evacuate from their homes. Uh, We don't really need to have those conversations. If people just trust us and evacuate, then they'll be much, much safer. It makes it more difficult for firefighters to have long conversations with people about when they should leave than, uh, than it needs to. And just trust us. Where we've got uh, our community's best interests at heart. We just want to keep people safe. So if people could, could plan that, make sure they've got um, enough equipment to take with them, so a, a bag that they can take with them. But if it's an emergency, just go. And things like don't mow your lawns, right, because that can spark, that can cause a fire. So in, in, the, in the heat of the day, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Of course, if the lawns are, lawns are too long, that can provide fuel to the fire. So yeah. we would recommend uh, that, that people do it when it's coldest or if it's just been raining. But if it's really hot during the day and you're in a fire restriction, then please don't mow your lawns. Yeah. Um, we're about to go into the... So, yeah. Good yeah, on you, Joe. All it needs to do is hit a rock, and that rock can then spark a fire, and uh, they have all sorts of trouble. We're mm. getting into the Lunar New Year now. I know that here in Canterbury, we've put a restriction on the use of fireworks. Yeah. It's not to dampen down people's fun, but we understand that it's, it's tinned to dry at the moment. So we ask that people keep safe in their communities, have a good time, but look after each other. Absolutely. It's a great note to finish on. Joe. thank you very much. Joe Stanley there, Vice President of the New Zealand Professional Firefighters Union, 428. I wanted to ask you, panel, and the listeners, well, I did. What's the best thing you've ever won? It seems like some people are very lucky in prize draws, some of us not quite so lucky. From this texter, best raffle present, a packet of sweet pea seeds. Endless colour and perfume, lovely. Meanwhile... (laughs) Uh, We're going to hear from Felicity in Hamilton now. Kia ora, Felicity. You won a great prize. Kia ora, Susanna. Yes, uh, indeed. uh, There were 32,000 entries for that competition. What year was this? What was the competition? This was 1996, and on Montana Theatre on a Sunday night, they were running... um, Pride and Prejudice. Best television show of all time. Loved it, loved it. Yes. 
Mr. Darcy. Six, yeah. six um, segments, and in the listener, who were one of the sponsors, you could enter um, a competition. Each week they'd have an entry, and you just had to name the five Bennett daughters. Oh, so and easy. my husband um, just filled out the little coupons, and we sent them off. What did so, you win? Well, we won an incredible prize, um, uh, a trip to England. Um, a trip to, to England? Econ- yeah, yes. sorry. To, to economy, economy fairs. Yes, £1,000 spending money. Wow. Pounds. In 97, yeah. Five nights of luxury accommodation in two small historic hotels and a 15-day pass to the Historic Places Trust. Did you go to Chatsworth? We didn't go to Chatsworth, we did follow, um, we had a, a magazine given to us telling us all about the locations where the film was made. Oh, yeah. And we went to Lime Park where Lovely. Mr Darcy went into the lake yes. and Laycock, a village in Wiltshire, um, mm. which was Meryton in the movie. Penny and I are green, just so you know. Yes. We're green, Felicity. It was a long time ago, but we're still quite envious, aren't we, Penny? Yes. yes. Well, some people but- said to me, no, that was my prize. That was meant to be for me. <laughs> but just to wrap it up, it was, wow. was significant. But can, can you just give us this final detail, for Felicity, about the timing before we go to the headlines? Well, it was 1996 that we won it, and we actually took it in um, September 1997, arriving two days after Princess Diana's funeral. So mm. it was a very historic time to be very. in England. Mm. Felicity, thank you so much. Great to hear from you.